Whether you know it or not, you're part of a large-scale discipleship program. Each and every day, our culture seeks to disciple your mind and your hearts into a story with certain values. And they put them together into a creed, which usually shows up on a lawn sign. And you can see a picture of that here. In this house, we believe. Black Lives Matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, love is love, kindness is everything. And there's different versions of this sign that you can find around. Different people have different things they like to emphasize as part of this creed, these values, these beliefs that our culture holds. Yet the goal is the same, to disciple you into their story. On most Sundays at Liberty, we say the Apostles' Creed. And we don't just say that because we think it's a good idea or because, uh, I don't know, we want to be old school or something like that. We say the Apostles' Creed to remind you, to remind me, to remind us of who God is and who we are in light of his story. The story of God's redeeming and reconciling love for our world through Christ, what we might call the gospel. And while there's things on that sign and in our culture story that may be admirable, and some of which actually they get from the Bible without even really knowing it, since the story is not God's story, what we have to do is we have to look at it with a critical eye. And so we start a new series today, The Cultural Creed. The series is largely based on Rebecca McLaughlin's The Secular Creed. And we're going to use that as a jumping point to look at our culture's values in light of the gospel. And I believe there might be a copy on the table as you walk out. So um, try not to elbow anybody, but if you want that, uh, make sure you get that on your way out. And today we're going to cover Black Lives Matter and look at that in light of the gospel. Next week we'll look at love is love. Then we'll look at women's rights or human rights. Science is real. No one is legal. And transgender women are women. And then I go on sabbatical. So, (laughs) a really hard series, and then I'm out of here for three months. But regardless, I'll be praying for you as you think you meditate and reflect on this. But the goal of this series is to show uh, to show that the gospel offers us better answers than our culture in addressing the issues of our day. But before we go any further, I just want to ask a couple of things of you. First. Could we go through this series without looking for boogeymen? Like, don't look under the bed for something that's not there. Look, most of you have sat through the preaching here at Liberty for some time now. We're not closet theological liberals. We're not. So don't go looking for that boogeyman. Like, oh, we'll just wait for him. Oh, Oh, yeah, I knew it. I knew it. He was a liberal. We're not Marxists. Like, it's, like it's, I just want to be clear about that. Like, I think it's, uh, was it Churchill is usually credited with this as, like, democracy, or maybe it says capitalism is the worst form of government or economics, except for all the other forms of government economics. Marxism, we're not Marxists. Marxism, when anybody in any country really takes that under its wing and promotes those ideas, people die. So we're not, we're not Marxists. And we're not uh, part of the alt-right either. 
Which is funny because, like, a lot of times I've been here long enough because I've started this church uh, that, like, people leave our church for us being too liberal. And people leave our church because we're too conservative. And you're not in those conversations, but I am, and I'm aware of all those conversations. So sometimes I sit back and laugh and go, maybe it's our assumptions about what's on limits and off limits that's the problem. Because you're saying, some people are saying, hey, liberty is too liberal, and some are saying it's too conservative. Maybe our assumptions coming into church and reading God's word are the problem. See, we're Orthodox Christians here. I just want to make that very clear. We're Orthodox Christians here, but because of culture's attempts to disciple you, the gospel compels us as a church to address certain topics, however uncomfortable. So please, don't look for boogeymen. But here's the other thing I'm going to ask you. Diffuse your landmines. Diffuse your landmines. Don't wait for us to step on your favorite hot-button issue. Or wait for us to make a mistake about something you're really sensitive about or passionate about and then explode with a nasty email or put us on blast on Facebook or Twitter or what have you. Instead, why don't we go into this series with open minds and open hearts about and hear what God's word has to say to us. So today I want to talk about Black Lives Matter and the gospel. And what I want us to see is that the gospel makes us part of God's family where all ethnicities are blessed and a blessing. And I want to just spend some time setting up this idea like there's a challenge here for God's family. There's something we struggle with, we need to talk about, we need to continue to talk about. And then I want to talk about how God's family must be a blessed multi-ethnic family. And then God's family must be a multi-ethnic blessing. So let's talk about the challenge for God's family, starting in verse 26 again of Galatians chapter 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. All. You'll need to be a Greek scholar. All means all. Anybody who puts faith, their faith in Jesus is a son of God. And through faith in Jesus, we become part of a new humanity and we're given a new identity. So from the very first pages of the Bible, we're told that God, Yahweh, created humanity. But the first humans chose to love themselves rather than love God and brought sin and death into the world. And I'm just going to go through the Bible a little bit pretty quickly, but there's going to be a lot here. So I just need you just to hang on, buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Several chapters later in Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram. And a new humanity is born. And God promised that he'd make Abram a great nation and he would bless him and his family and there'll be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that's how the Bible usually talks about it. See, the word nations in, the, in Greek, which is one of the original languages of the Bible, is the word ethnos. This is where we get the word ethnicity from. So we, typically in our culture, we talk about race, but actually the Bible spends more time talking about ethnicity. It's not necessarily like nations sometimes can help make us think about like borders and lines and maps. What the Bible is talking about is ethnicities. That Abram's family would be a blessing to all ethnicities. So then in Genesis 17, what God does, God takes Abram and he gives him a new identity. And what's he changed his name to? Abraham. 
So Abram meant exalted father. What Abraham means is father of many. This is a new humanity full of people with a new identity as sons and children of God. And then what God does is God always gives a sign and seal of these promises, these covenants. And he gives a sign and seal of that covenant, which is a physical mark. And that's circumcision. And only males can be circumcised. So you can talk to your parents about that later, about how that happens. But for now, let's just say males get circumcised. And that's the mark of being part of the new humanity. And so Abraham's, Abraham's family, think about this. They're supposed to be the light of the world. They're supposed to be the salt of the earth. They're supposed to be the city on a hill to call every ethnicity to worship Yahweh. And we see that in like Isaiah 56 when it talks about God's house being house of all nations. But we know from the rest of the Old Testament what happens is instead, this new humanity with a new identity becomes self-interested. And instead of inviting the nations into the worship Yahweh, they keep the nations at a distance. And there's even literal and figurative walls keeping the nations out. So fast forward to the New Testament. And we're in Galatians. And Paul, who plants this church in Galatia, and what Paul does, he often plants churches and he leaves. And Galatia, young people, teenagers, if you don't know, is in modern-day Turkey. And during his time in Galatia, he preaches about God's redeeming and reconciling love for the world through Christ's death and resurrection. And that by doing so, God brought Jew and Gentile together to be part of his family. But then he leaves, right? And some agitators come in and they claim that Gentiles must be circumcised because this is what it means to be part of Abraham's family. So Paul sends a letter. And he argues in the letter from the jump that God started a new humanity from Abram, Abraham and gave a new identity to Abraham before he was circumcised. So it was Abraham's faith, not his circumcision that made him righteous in God's eyes, made him part of God's family. His faith did that. And so while these agitators are talking about what it means to be sons of Abraham, what Paul does, he skips over Abraham, and he talks about what it means to be sons of God. He skips over sons of Abraham and says, here's what it means to be sons of God. And he says, you become sons of God through faith in Abraham's perfect son, Jesus, which makes you sons of Abraham, too. And now, through faith, all ethnicities are invited to Jesus and united in him and to him. The Bible talks about this being the like union with Christ. Our union with Christ makes us part of a new humanity, and we're given a new identity in him. So then in verse 27, Paul says this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Teenagers, in the ancient church, those who were coming to be baptized would come naked. True story. Aren't you happy we don't do that anymore? It's a good thing, right? Ancient church was great, but it doesn't mean we had to do everything they did, especially the naked stuff. 
And they get baptized, and when that was done, what would happen is they would be given a white robe to clothe themselves in, to symbolize clothing themselves in Christ, to symbolize putting on Christ. So instead of marking God's family with the sign and seal of circumcision, which only males could receive, the sign and seal for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus is baptism, and anyone can receive that, male and female. And when you're baptized, you put on a new identity as part of a new humanity. All right, that's a lot of theology. It's a lot of Bible. And you're probably like, okay, what does this have to do with Black Lives Matter? First, God's family must be a blessed multi-ethnic family. So look at verse 28. Paul says, there is neither, or Carolyn says neither, which is fancier than me. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, God's family becomes a new humanity where those who are historically kept out are let in. And when Paul says there's neither or neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male and female. He's not saying that you lose your ethnic, financial, and sexed identity when you start following Jesus. What he's saying is that all other identities become secondary to your primary one as a son of God in Jesus. If you ever play a sport, you know this. On the front is the name of the team. On the back is your name. It's the same thing here. Evan, Gentile, free, male, is on the back. White, Northeast Philadelphian, by birth, Christian, it takes that Christian identity takes precedent over all the other ones that I might hold to. But what's happened is over the centuries and over millennia, and everybody has done this from the beginning of time, what we've done is we've taken secondary identities and have taken them and put, built walls to keep people out. So we build ethnic ones. Jew and Gentile, there's a wall. Financial ones, slave, free. Sex, male, female. And while in American history we've been guilty of building all of these walls at times, the most carefully constructed wall we've built is the one that has kept black people out. And there's different ways we've done this. One is just legislative walls. Legislative walls. Slavery in Paul's time, if you didn't know this, was often voluntary. It's usually for economic reasons, but it always was limited to seven years. Unless you were Caesar, you got 14. All right, so Caesar pulled some power move, and instead of seven, he gets double that. All right? But it's always limited. And what would happen after those seven or 14 years, you'd be given the wages that have been saved up by your master. You've been given those wages, and you were declared free. But in America, the institution of lifelong forced slavery on black people started in 1619 until it ended with the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. 
Then blacks weren't able to be citizens and own land until 1866. And they couldn't vote until 1870. And they experienced legalized segregation in the South until the Civil Rights Act in 1964. 1964, like guys, that's not that long ago. Some of you were alive. Some of your parents were alive. Young people, some of your grandparents were alive, right? But people that you know were alive when that happened. It hasn't been that long. So you've been keeping score at home now from slavery to civil rights, 345 years, and it's been 59 years since. So let me just pause for a second. When we kind of say, particularly us, let me talk to the white people in here. When we say, as white people, like, oh, the Civil Rights Act happened, just move on. We act like, did you just move on? Like 345 years to 59 years? You see why it's hard? Their grandparents, their parents were alive. It's hard. We got a lot, long ways to go to balance the scales. And there's systemic walls. I know sometimes we get really freaked out about like uh, systemic racism, but here, listen to me, theologically speaking, not historically, just theologically speaking, if sinners build systems, inevitably those systems will have sinful elements, including racist ones. I don't know how you get past that. I don't know how you ignore that. And we saw that in things like redlining in the 1930s as part of the New Deal. What happened in the 1930s is that the government ranked neighborhoods from least to most risky. Could you guess which ones were the most risky? The ones where a majority of black Americans lived. And they wouldn't give out mortgages they would give out to the least risky areas, and they would give out less mortgages to the most risky areas. Personally, there's personal walls that I remember growing up in Longcrest, which is now the most racially diverse section of Northeast Philadelphia, actually all of Philadelphia. I remember the first black family moving into my neighborhood. And I re distinctly remember being young and in middle school watching my neighbors, my friends' houses go for sale the next day. And there's even church walls that we built in America, particularly. The African Methodist Episcopal denomination, you know where it started? Philadelphia. The first AME church was at 6 in Lombard in 1794. You know why they started it? Because they went to the Methodists to get AIDS for black Americans, and they wouldn't give it to them. Listen, I just want you to listen to me and hear me out. Black lives matter to God, and they should matter to us. Jesus came to create a blessed, multi-ethnic family, and in his death has knocked down the walls that keep anyone out simply based on ethnicity. All anyone has to do is believe. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. You just have to believe. Ephesians 2, Paul says, that Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This dividing wall of hostility is the wall between Jew and Gentile, of the wall between ethnicities. So a Christian can say the statement, black lives matter, without reservation. We don't have to respond with, oh, all lives matter. And to, when people say that, I want to say something like this. Hey, 
when Mother's Day comes up next month and you say to a mom, Happy Mother's Day, do you mean fathers don't matter? Of course not. You're saying that on May 14th, 2023, moms matter because they do. And they should get particular attention, love, and care on that day. So when we say black lives matter, we're not saying that black lives matter more than anyone else. As much as Paul wasn't suggesting that Gentile lives matter more than Jewish ones. We're saying based on history and in this cultural moment, in the 59 years since the civil rights and the 345 years before then, black lives matter and they need particular attention, love, and care because we haven't done a good job. And as Christians who believe in repentance, redemption, and reconciliation, we should be able to admit that. We should be able to admit that because of America's history of putting up walls, we need to make clear that black lives should matter because they matter to Jesus and we've done a poor job at treating them as if they do. And any walls that exist, the ones we may have put up historically or personally, should be broken down. In Jesus, God doesn't wipe away our ethnic differences. Instead, what he does is he integrates them into his new humanity and gives us a new identity as his sons. Our union with Jesus makes us united with every family member, no matter their ethnicities. And so listen to me. There are two dangers that we can fall into. Two dangers of unity to the church and then also in a danger to the harmony of our world. The first one is pride. Many of us put up walls because of pride. We won't listen to the experiences of black, brown, black and brown brothers and sisters because we believe we have nothing to learn. Or we've never done anything wrong. That's pride. We'll respond to their experiences with whataboutisms. Well, what about me? I grew up in a risky neighborhood, but I made something of myself. Why can't you? Or crime. We go, well, what about black-on-black -black crime? Or when a black man gets convicted, we go, well, what about his father? Was he in his life? Listen, guys, white-collar crime, let's just be honest here. White-collar crime costs us up to $1.7 trillion per year, according to the Department of Justice. When that happens, does anybody ask, what about their fathers? Were they in their lives? Nobody asked that. It's what aboutism. It's saying your experience doesn't matter. Look, it doesn't mean that like, you didn't grow up in a risky neighborhood. It doesn't mean that we, have, like, we, can't, we shouldn't talk about those subjects. But they both can be true. Many of us, we, we resist changes that might come to our churches. If we integrate, we, we aren't open to feedback on how we can better treat our black brothers and sisters as equals without getting defensive or without being willing to ask forgiveness when we make mistakes and to make sure it doesn't happen again. So many of us struggle with pride, and that's a danger to the church and to the world. But another danger is embarrassment and regret. We shouldn't hold as followers of Jesus mistakes over people's heads. We shouldn't use failures of the past as weapons to embarrass brothers and sisters in the present or make them live with regret by reminding them of their past mistakes and many times for things they had nothing to do with. This is not fair. 
And this is why. Although you might be able to say the statement, Black Lives Matter, without reservation, I have significant reservations about the organization, significant ones. Their ideological ties with their, in their, with their leaders, significant. How they spend their money, significant reservations. And I particularly have a reservation about how, when it's suggested, as often it is, that one ethnicity is responsible for all the ills of the world. I just can't get behind that. That's at best ignorant. At worst, it's sinister to suggest that. Pride and embarrassment and regret build walls. And walls destroy God's family and they also destroy human harmony. The reason we build walls is to protect ourselves and our own interests and deflect responsibility. And the more we keep deflecting and building walls in our churches, our neighborhoods, our cities and world with bricks like pride and embarrassment and regret, what will be the result? Pride, such as not listening or throwing around whataboutisms, will lead to resentment on the other side and then anger, and eventually there'll be outrage. And making people constantly feel like they should be embarrassed and filled with regret will turn people off. We won't be able to have the conversations. And the more you use those, as, those things as tactics of persuasion, it will lead to resentment, then anger, and then outrage. And that's what we have. But the Church of Jesus Christ has an opportunity. We have an opportunity to be a shining light of multi-ethnic harmony to the world. Sometimes that happens in our churches, and sometimes that's because when we reach out our arms to embrace other churches. See, Jesus was torn apart on the cross for our brothers and sisters. And we have no right to build walls when Christ has been torn apart, torn apart to tear them down. Our union with Christ means we receive a new identity and are united with others in this new humanity, and it is our job. Guys, don't you see that? It's our job to make sure those walls stay broken down, especially in our churches, to show the world what ethnic harmony could look like around the common connecting point of Jesus and his death and resurrection. That's the only way it's possible. You need a common connecting point. Because what's going to happen is there's going to be people here, and I know this is true, you're going to be at different sides of the aisle in this argument. But if we have a common connecting point of Jesus, we'll be able to be together and be united, even when we disagree. I know some of you disagree with me. I know it. It's okay. I'm asking you, let's make Christ the center, the connecting point. Jesus' family must be a multi-ethnic blessing to all. Galatians 3.29 says this, And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In Jesus, God's multi-ethnic family seeks to bless all ethnicities. The gospel motivation is stronger than culture's motivation. No one, if you were to ask the culture why, like why should black lives matter, I think that the response would basically go something like this, because they should. And that's fine on some level, but the steam of should will fade pretty quickly. Like should may get me off the couch, but when it gets uncomfortable, what am I going to do? Go back to the couch. 
should may make me want to break down walls for a moment until I get tired and I don't feel like it anymore. And should may make me want God to integrate differences in my church family for a few Sundays. I can hold on until someone from one of my secondary identities criticizes me and I allow that to cloud out my primary identity in Christ. The heart of God is our motivation. God and Jesus broke down walls of our sin that kept us out and broke down walls between Jew and Gentile. Why? So I could get in. So you could get in. And if I'm grateful for that, I want to break down walls as well, especially for those who've been historically kept out, like our black brothers and sisters in the Lord. And when we break down the walls between us and we go into the world to break down walls and invite all nations of the earth in, we get a picture of heaven where we see Christians, just like we did the call to worship, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They're all standing, what? Before the throne and before the Lamb, and they're crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we can get to be a picture of that here on earth. And so as we close, here's my challenges to you. First, listen and learn. You know what James says? Right? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Too many of us are quick to talk, quick to speak, we're slow to listen, and we're really quick to get angry. Don't be so quick to get defensive. Remember what Christ has done for you. There's no need to be defensive. There's no need to be defensive if somebody says, hey, I think you made a mistake here. I think you, I would like your forgiveness for that. I would ask, sorry, I would ask for your, I would ask you to, um, that you would apologize for that and I would love to forgive you. Like Jesus outed you on the cross. He knows you messed up. There's no need to be defensive. But I get defensive. And when black and Brown brothers and sisters tell me about their experiences. Oftentimes, I don't do a good job at offering sympathy, and I don't let their pain change my heart. I just don't. Be honest. So we have to listen and learn, and then we have to repent and reconcile. Listen, some of us, we have to repent of the ways we do a poor job with this. We're thinking like racism isn't a big deal. Oh, you know, 59 years ago. One of, them, one of our church members who since moved, had been a Christian for decades, and I, can't, I remember this in 20, 2020 at this, uh, my sermon on, at that time, which many of you are probably catching. We've been here a while. This is basically the same sermon. I just recycle it and just change some things about multi-ethnicity. But he said to me that that was the first time he ever heard a sermon about racism. He's been a Christian for decades. Shame on us acting like it's not a big deal. So we have to repent of making secondary identities, primary ones, and filling us up with pride or making us want to use embarrassment and regret as weapons. And we need to reconcile with those who we've hurt and those who've hurt us. And then lastly, we have to evangelize and advocate. 
There's a temptation in many circles to respond to topics like this by just by saying, just preach the gospel. Now put aside that the pro-slavery people in the Civil War use that line all the time. Just preach the gospel. That should humble us, okay? But as we've seen, that wrongly sees the gospel simply as evangelism. And doesn't mean we advocate for just laws. And we say that because we say, well, laws won't change hearts. But I love this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He says, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can stop him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important. Right? Yeah, people's hearts need to change. But there's laws and there's things that have to change that are pretty important too. Give a hungry man some food and tell him about Jesus. We do it with homeless ministry all the time. All the time. We don't say, oh, just preach the gospel. We're like, oh, here's a meal. Let me tell you about Jesus. We address the physical and the spiritual needs. Nobody ever gets upset at me when I, we talk about abortion. When I talk about this, people get upset. I don't understand. Same thing. When we say, hey, when we get to that part where it's around women rights and about abortion, we're not saying baby lives matter more than anyone else. We're saying in these circumstances, in this time, baby lives should matter. Because they're being systemically eliminated. But we care for moms who might consider abortion and we do adoption. And no one says when we talk about that, just preach the gospel. So again, maybe it's our assumptions about what's off limits that are wrong. So we need evangelism and advocacy. And if we if you see Jesus. Jesus' desire to create a new humanity filled with, a new, with, with new identity people of all ethnicities will want to grow that family through evangelism and find ways to be advocates for our black brothers and sisters. Listen, in Jesus, black lives matter, and they should matter to us too, but I think Jesus' way is better. It's motivated by God's heart. It's motivated by what Jesus has done on the cross for us. It's not just because we should because of what Jesus has done for us. Because it's about what I should do. I'm just not going to do it. But in Jesus, I can see that God brought his promises in Ab- to Abraham to pass. And he broke down these dividing walls of hostility. And he calls us to break down those walls too. And I can see that. And I can say, wow, in Jesus, God's family is a blessed multi-ethnic family. That works together to be a blessing to all ethnicities. Let's pray.